Uh, Let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that it shows us Jesus. Uh, We pray that we would see him tonight in his word and like his first apostles that we would see his glory and put our trust in him. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it as it is, the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Why Cana? That's probably not the first question you had when you heard this portion of scripture of John's gospel being read. Why Cana? But when you see the build-up to this point in the story in chapter 1 of John's gospel, And when you recognise that Cana, in all reality, is just to the north of Hicksville, it becomes a question worth asking. Now, in our series, uh, which we really began at Christmas and the week before Christmas, we've kind of passed over the rest of John uh, chapter 1. But expectation is building around Jesus all through chapter 1. Uh, Reading through, we would have heard John the Baptist, a man recognised by the people of his day as a genuine prophet. We would have heard John the Baptist say publicly of Jesus, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because it was before me. Oh, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God. And following John's witness to Jesus, we would have seen Jesus start to gather followers. And they are convinced about who Jesus is. (coughs) So Andrew says to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And Philip is called and then Philip finds Nathanael and he says to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And after meeting Jesus, Nathanael himself says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. His first followers are really claiming that Jesus is the man. The man that God's people, the Jewish people, have been waiting for. They're saying Jesus is the one who will fulfil the prophecies that God gave to his people. He is the promised king of Israel who will whose rule God himself will establish. He's the one who's going to sort things out for God's people, destroy their enemies and bring the promised peace, security and prosperity. The kind of peace, security and prosperity you heard spoken of in Amos 9. And to, in a sense, crown that build-up through chapter 1, Jesus doesn't deny or hose down their enthusiasm at all. He basically says at the end of the chapter to his followers, you haven't seen anything yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is referring there to an incident in the life of the common ancestor of the Jewish people, in the life of their ancestor Jacob where he had had a vision of a stairway to heaven, recorded in Genesis 28. He, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and there above it stood the Lord. 
And then it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so when Jesus speaks that his followers will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon himself, the Son of Man, he's actually saying they will recognise that he is in a sense the house of God, the place where heaven and earth meet, that in his presence they are in the presence of God and he is the way to heaven. And so there's been really quite a big build-up. The Jesus movement throughout chapter 1 is gaining momentum. Great claims are being made by and for Jesus. And then they go to a wedding at Cana on the third day. A time note that deliberately links this story with Jesus gathering his first followers. On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother's was, mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, had you ever heard of Cana before? Outside the Bible, have you ever heard of Cana? Well, the answer is actually no. Not much, you see, is known about Cana and that's the point. It was an obscure, small village. About nine miles, we're told, that's about 15 kilometres north of Nazareth, which, despite Jesus having lived there, was actually just another obscure, small village. In fact, when Nathaniel had first heard that Jesus had come from Nazareth, he had said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was actually just reflecting local sentiment, what the locals thought, for Nathaniel came from Cana, that neighbouring village. Oh, there were large and important wealthy cities in Galilee lying on important trade routes. One of them, Sephorus, as you can see in that brilliantly magnified map. Let me say this was just an encouragement to sit further to the front. right? But as you can see, Sephorus uh, actually lay between Nazareth down there in the south and Cana above it. There were large wealthy cities. But Nazareth really was Hicksville, much smaller, poor, just a village, whose contact with the sophisticated and wealthy city actually lay in providing labourers for it. And Cana, well, it was just another village desperately trying to show that it was better than the neighbour it was so like. There were big cities, but Jesus didn't go to the big city. He goes to Cana. Now think, if you were the man, if you were building a movement, if you wanted to show people what you had to offer, you wouldn't go to Cana. Oh yes, Jesus had a wedding invitation, but going to Cana and making that the place where you really show your stuff, well that's a, a bit like winning the leadership of your political party, being on track to become PM, and then having your campaign launch on the side while attending a family wedding in, and of course I need to be careful here that I offend as few people as possible, but let's say Bort or Pyramid Hill, right? And this is the family wedding of the less reputable cousins. Oh, they're not bad. They just can't get their act together. You see, this family whose wedding Jesus is attending, 
He's not going to improve his social reputation by associating with them. They're on the brink of a major social scandal. They are running out of wine. In fact, our story starts with them having run out of wine. Now, weddings were a big deal in rural first century Palestine. The wedding was a whole village affair and the festivities could go on for a week with guests coming and going. Your reputation, your honour in the community depended on the kind of hospitality you showed over that week. To run out of something as essential as wine was to suffer public shame and disgrace for the couple and especially for the bridegroom's family, exposing either their poverty or incompetence and opening to accusations of lack of respect for the bride's family and for their guests. Now that kind of failure in a small village culture was remembered and it could even lead to the groom's family being taken to court by the wife's relatives for shaming them publicly. It led to a legacy of bitterness and division. And so to run out of wine in a shame on a culture was a social catastrophe. Running out of wine suggests that this family were either poor or disorganised or unreliable or thoughtless or some combination of the above. Jesus won't gain status by associating with them. But Jesus didn't just go to the wedding of this unimportant family in this obscure place. The text tells us he deliberately made this place, the place where he did the first of his signs, the beginning of his signs. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. This is where he started to show them his glory, to impress upon his followers his reality. Now, if you wanted to be known, wanted people to know what you could do, what you had to offer, would you do it in a place like Cana, among people of low wealth and status, out of sight and out of mind from the major population centres? Well, no, you wouldn't, would you? So why Cana? Why make this the site for the first of your signs? Well, the answer to that question is found by asking another question. What did Jesus show of himself? What did he reveal at this event? Well, the first thing he revealed is that he is a man with a sense of purpose. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now the lack of wine is, is first of all noticed by Mary or first of all drawn to her attention. Mary, Jesus' mother. And for reasons we're not told in John, she tells Jesus about it with complete confidence that he can fix the problem. Now this is probably more than her being a doting mother. She'd lived with Jesus for many years and we're told that she'd stored up all the events surrounding his birth in her heart. She had justifiably high expectations of her boy. But his reply puts distance between her agenda and his. Woman, why do you involve me? It's an idiom, literally, 
Woman, what to me and to you? Now, now woman is not as harsh a form of address as it may sound to us. From the cross, as Jesus is providing for Mary's welfare, he addresses her with the same word, John 19. Woman, behold your son. So there's respect and affection here. But the next phrase is not just a way of saying, this is not my problem. No, it's a way of saying to Mary, your problem doesn't become my problem. You should not expect to direct me in this. And Jesus continues, my hour has not yet come. See what Jesus is saying? I have a time, an hour. I know what I have come to do, what my work is and when it is to be done. In my work, I don't take direction from you. In fact, we see Jesus has a sense of purpose from his relationship with his Father, God learning from him the work the Father has sent him to do. It's this work, the work that the Father has given him, that he's come to do, that he directs his life to doing. Oh yes, and doing it at the time the Father has determined. And so fulfilling this hour is Jesus' agenda. He's not directed by the expectations of others, whether it's the crowds and their conception of what the Christ should do, or whether it's his disciples and their conception of what the Christ should do, are not directed by his family, even his mother. Jesus walks from the beginning of his ministry to the beat of his own drum, doing the work the Father has given him. And that makes what he does next an even more deliberate revelation of himself. What he's about to do, he's not doing because Mary has asked. He's doing because it suits his purpose. But Jesus does act. He gives instructions to the servants, as we've heard, who've already been worded up by Mary. Yeah, the six stone water jars are there and he says, fill them right up, right up to the brim and then he directs them to take some out and take it to the master of the banquet and when the master of the banquet tastes it, he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. The servants have done as Jesus told them to do and when what was drawn from the stone jars was tasted by the MC, it was wine, quality wine. Now, think of the extraordinary nature of what the servants had witnessed. What does it take to turn water into wine? Well, sun and soil and rain and a grapevine, harvesters, fermenting barrels and time. It is something, of course, which, when you think about it, you recognise the Creator God is doing all the time. Oh yes, normally he does it by that sun and soil and rain and grapevine harvesters and fermenting barrels. But he is the one who does it ultimately, isn't he? He's the one who sends the rain and the sunshine, who designed the fermentation process, who gives life to the vine and the harvesters. Jesus here shows he has the creative power of God himself has this creative power in his word. And he makes a lot of wine. Each stone jar 
contained, we're told, 75 to 115 litres of water. And we're told that Jesus specifically instructed that they be filled to the brim. You do the maths and you realise that Jesus gifted this couple a lot of top quality wine. The lower limit is 600 of the standard 750 ml bottles. The upper is about 900 bottles. You see, the volume brings home how effortless this is for Jesus. How great is his power. How generous his gift. And it is good wine. The best, says the MC. The generous and rich abundance created by Jesus is meant to call to our minds what's being promised in the Old Testament of the time when God establishes his reign and rescues his people from judgment. That time spoken of in Amos 9. Remember what was read? The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Jesus is showing here that he has the power of God to bring the new age God has promised. That in a sense he has the power of God to bring the salvation of God, the time of abundance and peace, of right relationship between God and his people where they're no longer under his judgment but enjoy his favour always. But Jesus doesn't just show his power, the power of God here. He shows us more. He shows us himself. He shows us that he is gracious, kind to the needy and the undeserving. Think of his action, the sheer free generosity of his gift, the abundance with which he met their lack. See, he has quietly rescued them from social disgrace, a rescue he was under no obligation to provide from a disgrace that they were responsible for bringing on themselves. Yet they and their reputation will now, by the action of Jesus, be enriched in their community. And think of the secrecy of this provision Jesus makes. He doesn't draw attention to their problem. He doesn't say, look everybody, gather round. You know, they've run out of wine, but it's so good that I am here. He doesn't embrace them publicly to draw attention to himself. Only the servants, it says, and his disciples know. Jesus kindly preserves their reputation at the cost of not enhancing his own more widely. And then think of the recipients, not just of the gift, but of this revelation of his glory. The recipients of the gift were an unimportant, poor, young couple, people who couldn't do anything for Jesus. And besides his disciples, who witnessed these events, the revelation of Jesus' glory? Was it the village dignitaries or the local wealthy? No, it was the servants, perhaps hired just for the occasion, the, the catering staff, not even the party goers but the people who would have been invisible to so many, they're just taken for granted. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. What did Jesus show of himself? 
Well, the glory we've heard of in John 1.14, full of grace and truth. The grace and truth of the one sent from the Father. That's what we see here, isn't it? Great grace, generous and thoughtful kindness to the undeserving. Oh, yeah, and truth. Jesus is the real. He is the genuine one from God, the one who is before John, the one who does the work of God and speaks the words of God. He revealed his glory and he did it deliberately. John calls this revealing action a sign. A sign is something, of course, that points beyond itself. It reveals and in revealing itself, this action points beyond itself. It's not done for its own sake. It's not done as a simple display of power. It's to point us to Jesus, to who he is and what he came to do. You see, in showing how Jesus met the lack, supplied the need, prevented the shame of failure from engulfing this couple and their family, this sign points us to Jesus and his work. You see, Jesus didn't just come to be a wonder worker or to help us through the occasional difficulties and crises and ups and downs of this life to bail us out from time to time from the consequences of our own shortcomings. No, Jesus came for something greater. There is a greater need, a greater lack that Jesus came to meet with his great grace and power. Now, some of you think you might have no need, that you'll never be in a position like that married couple. You know, you're thinking, I've got it together. My resources are enough to do all that's expected of me, to live life enjoying the respect of others. In fact, you might even be tempted to look down on these country people and their incompetence or on people who can only make it in life with the help of others. You might be thinking that, but you have need. You see, there will be a day when you will run out. I've often preached on this passage at weddings, as some of you know. It might have been your wedding. And in the promises... And the promises the bride and groom make to each other, there's always this line, or oh, one like it. They make their promises until we are parted by death. So even there, in the happiest of days, there is the acknowledgement of our human reality that one day we will run out of life. All of us, that we have a finite number of days and hours. So that death casts its shadow even over the sunniest of our days. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, I have wedding photos of my parents and grandparents, beautiful, happy, but all gone. We run out of life. And that day's not a nice day. That day is a day of humiliation. You see, on the day of our death, all our promises will be shown to be empty. All our boasting of power shown to be vain. All our achievements, all that we relied on to give us identity and status will be stripped from us. Our possessions given to others to enjoy. Think of it. We'll be put in the earth and left. Or consigned to the flames and confined to an urn. Indignities we would never allow ourselves to suffer if we were alive. 
And we die that death, not just because we're children of Adam and sharing the death that he brought into the world by his disobedience to God. No, we'll die that death because of our own sin, our own rebellion against our good creator, our own choosing to believe, like Adam, that we know better than God and have a right to do what pleases us, not what he tells us to do. You see, whether we exercise that right in just ignoring God, keeping him out of our lives rather than giving him thanks, or using the good gifts he gives to gives to us selfishly rather than loving others, or by choosing to do the exact opposite of his command, say, to lie where he calls for truth, to injure where he calls for compassion. However we choose to live pleasing ourselves, we sin. And for our sin we die. We run out of life. And it is a day of loss and humiliation. And we will all be confronted with our lack, our need of life. Jesus in his grace and power says he is the one who has come to meet your need. He is the one who can meet your need. In fact, that is what we will hear him promise over and over again in this Gospel of John. Just two examples. To the Samaritan woman, he says, whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's speaking of the Spirit of God, the new life that God gives us that continues forever into the new heaven and earth. Or to a grieving Martha, he will say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives believing in me will never die. And meeting that need, providing the life that will never run out, is the work the Father has given Jesus. It is the content of his hour. In the last week of his life, Jesus refers again to his hour, saying, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. That death, like the death of a seed, will be fruitful, will bring life. But it was troubling for Jesus to face death. And he goes on to say this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had, heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The content of Jesus' hour, the gospel tells us, is Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' purpose the work the Father had given him was to die the death that would make him the saviour of the world, to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, to die the death 
that is the just penalty for our sin, for our rebellion against our Creator, for our ignoring of God, for our disobeying God, for our using God's good gift, especially his good gift of life, to defy God. Jesus' purpose was to die and so fulfil the purpose of God in sending the Son into the world, his giving of his unique Son, so that he might be the source of eternal life to whoever believes in him. This gracious, kind, generous and mighty act in turning the water into wine at this country wedding is to point you to the even greater, more gracious and loving act of Jesus on the cross, doing what only God can do, bringing life from death and doing it freely because he is the gracious and faithful God, the Son of God, the Word become flesh, dying the death that will become the source of eternal life for you, though you could never deserve or earn such a gift or such love. And that is why Jesus makes the beginning of signs at Cana. It's so that you would know that his life-giving power and grace is for you if you will believe in him. You see, at Cana, this demonstration of the grace and power of God, this revelation of Jesus' glory is made for ordinary people before ordinary people. And isn't that wonderful? He doesn't choose to do this before the rich and powerful, the talented and useful, not even for those who had it all together. From the start, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we know that it's for you and I. People who don't occupy the positions of power, people who may be doing the ordinary menial jobs, the humdrum, like sitting exams or stacking shelves or tanning the sick or digging trenches or looking after children or, or writing code or whatever it is. Oh yeah, and people whose lives might be a mess who don't have it all together. See, Jesus chose Cana so that you would know that the revelation of his glory in his coming is for you so that you would know the revelation of his glory on the cross is for you, so that you would know the generous gift of life he graciously and freely gives to all who turn to him is for you. It says the disciples saw his glory and believed in him. Now, they didn't understand everything yet. They still had a lot of wrong expectations that Jesus would have to correct. But they saw and believed that he was the one sent from the Father, the one who could bring the life of the age to come, the one who is gracious to the needy. Perhaps the Lord Jesus, through the words of his gospel, has revealed his glory to you now for the first time as you've been listening. Well, if you have a conviction that Jesus is who he said he is, that his is the power of God and his is the kindness of God. Put your trust in Jesus and his promise.
and come and talk. But start on the journey of trusting and learning more about Jesus. But many of you I know already believe. I pray that seeing Jesus' glory at Cana, you would be renewed here at the turn of the year in your conviction of the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Oh, convicted again of his power, that he is the word become flesh, the word through whom all things were made, that his is the power of the creator, the power to bring the life of the age to come, that life that will never run dry, to bring it and give it to you, that you'll be convicted again of his power and you'll be convicted, especially seeing this work done at Cain, of his generous graciousness, of his kindness to people whose lives are messy and fall short and sometimes fall apart. Draw near to Jesus for renewed life. Make that your desire and purpose in the coming year. Draw near in the need, the lack you may feel of love or life or means. Draw near to find your need met in Jesus and met generously. I hope that you'll be convicted of his power and graciousness so that in the coming year you'll be somebody who listens to Mary. That's right. Mary speaks here the only words that are recorded of her in John's Gospel. And she speaks as a believer for confidence in Jesus to people who in turn become believers, those servants who did what Jesus said. Remember what she said? Do whatever he tells you. Whether that's to confidently confess him amongst your unbelieving friends or family or to stay faithful in a hard relationship or to pray for your enemies or to forgive or to keep your word or to serve God alone and not money and set your minds on the things above. Do whatever he tells you. Because as the servants found, this is the way to see his glory revealed before you. His glory revealed in your own life and to have your want satisfied. Believe and do whatever he tells you. And you'll find that the eternal Son, Jesus, the Word become flesh, is full of grace and truth. And he can be trusted to deliver what he promises, what he died to bring, life, eternal life, starting now and going on forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that you would reveal Jesus' glory to us and through our obedience reveal Jesus' glory to others. Help us to see, to see his power and his grace, to be convicted of it and in this coming year to trust him, to trust him wholly as he deserves, to grow in our understanding of his glory and to be those 
who do whatever he tells us. And we ask this for the glory and honour of your Son. Amen.